Yo, yo, welcome to Crypto 101, the average consumer's guide to cryptocurrency. This is Matthew Aaron. And how do you really prove where you are? How do you prove where you've been? Well, most people say, ah, I'll just look at GPS. I'll Google it. I'll look at my Apple Maps. That'll show me where I am. But how do you know it's accurate? How do you know it's telling the truth? Well, for that, you're going to need proof of location. And here to talk all about proof of location is the CEO of XYO Network, Mr. Ari Tro. And in this conversation, we're going to tell you what, what proof of location means, why it's important, its use cases, and what XYO Network is doing to prove your location. But before we go into that conversation, I know you're listening to this podcast on an app and whatever app that is, please make sure you're subscribed, leave us a rating and a comment if it allows you to, or do me an extra big favor and go over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a comment there. It helps us stay visible. Also, head over to Crypto101Podcast.com. You're going to see a pop-up. That's to add your email. And by adding your email, you're going to be notified when our new book comes out, Crypto Revolutions, a book written to lead the charge to mainstream adoption of cryptocurrency enter your email there to get notified when your free copy is ready to be shipped to your house and while you're at crypto101podcast.com click the icons the twitter the instagram the facebook to join the community to stay notified all things crypto 101 also on the page is a link to our patrons patrons get these episodes 24 hours or more ahead of time and sometimes in video form plus a lot more bonuses so think about becoming a patron and help support crypto 101 and lastly i want to say thank you to randy for editing this episode and now without further ado here is mr ari tro proof of location we'll see you after the show ari tro co-founder of xyo welcome to crypto 101 sir thank you matthew i'm uh, glad to be here Ari, you know what? We've had your co-founder, Scott Shepard, on the show talking about XYO Network. However, we didn't really go into GPS. We didn't go into the technology behind what you're doing with your company. But before we get into that, I want to know a little bit about you. You were born in South Africa, is that correct? That is correct. I was born in South Africa, in uh, Pretoria, and uh, I actually moved to the, the United States when I was pretty young. I was about seven years old in 1976, which, of course, dates me. But <laughs> most of you guys weren't alive at that point in time, probably. Uh, and I moved to Cleveland, actually, of all places. Uh, my dad was a physician, so um, that was where he happened to get a job. And so I was an ESL student. I learned English here. And obviously, I learned computer programming here as well. Hmm. And uh, at a young age in Cleveland, I started going to Radio Shack and learning how to program. So that was probably one of my more fortunate incidences in the, my life. You, you know I'm from Cleveland, yeah? Are you? Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah, I went to Mayfield. Oh, okay. I'm uh, Solon, Bainbridge. I always hated Solon because you guys have such a big school that your football team just had so many good players on it. <laughs> it is, it's one of the best in the state, actually. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Mayfield, not so much. But you said you learned ESL here. Why Don't they speak English in uh, South Africa? They do, but um, if you're Afrikaans speaking in South Africa, then you learn or you grow up speaking Afrikaans as a child, and then you learn English when you go to, to a grade school and middle school. Oh, that's interesting. And so my sister started learning English um, because she was a couple years older than me in South Africa, but I had not taken any English when I was there. So I started learning English in the States. Okay, so moving to Cleveland, then you became a serial entrepreneur. And I mean, of course, I'm jumping years here, but you became a serial entrepreneur. What was like your first job? When did you just start getting that bug of, I'm not working for somebody? Did you ever work for somebody or did you go straight into it? No, no, I definitely worked for somebody um, quite a few times. I guess in middle school, probably when I was 13 or so, I started working in a warehouse to save up money to buy a computer. I wanted to buy a TRC. Actually, I had a TRC Model 1. I wanted to buy an Atari 800 at the time. And it was you know, 1982 or 83 whenever I bought that was about 700 bucks, which mm -hmm. 
at that time for a 13 year old kid, $700 was a lot of money. It's probably the equivalent of, you know, say $2,000 now. And so I worked the whole summer to save up to buy that computer and start a bulletin board on my Atari 800 at the time. So, because the TRS-80 Model 1 was only 16K, it didn't have any color or anything like that. And, you know, even though I'd learned how to program that and learn Z80 assembly language, um, you know, I, I actually really probably wanted an Apple, but the Apple IIs were really expensive. Mm-hmm. So I ended up selling for the Atari. But I was kind of happy about that because it has uh, both an audio and a video coprocessor. So it was probably a more interesting programming system than Apple was at the time. So you worked for somebody to save up to get your first computer. Then you started programming. You, did you take it apart? You just you know got straight into learn the guts of it. And then how did that influence you to move on to start doing your own thing? Or did you keep working for people for a while and then you decided to say I'm gonna start start my own? I kind of did both. So what I, I did was yeah, I was kind of entrepreneurial as a kid. I uh, in, a, in a somewhat good, somewhat bad way. I, I was a little bit of a hacker. I would crack games and you know, I couldn't afford to buy a bunch of the games because they were very expensive for the time. And so I ran a bulletin board. I uh, took my computer apart and learned how to use that and that sort of a thing. And so a lot of my uh, my motivation at uh, at that age was to be able to play more games, be able to communicate with people out there, and to do uh, I wouldn't say nefarious things, but more you know uh, naughty things or, or interesting <laughs> things. If you've seen the movie uh, War Games, kind of that you know, sort of a thing. You, mm-hmm. you war dial and you find interesting things to do and that sort of a thing. So I did that until I was about 18. I realized, you know, I'm 18 years old now, I probably shouldn't be doing this anymore. So I shut all that stuff off. But at that point, I already learned how the floppy drive works and the computer works and mm-hmm. taking it apart. And I wouldn't call myself a hardware engineer at all nowadays, but at least I understand it well enough to have a context for how the software works. You know, that's probably one of the reasons why I do like the, the overlap between hardware and software like we do at XYO now. But even after that, I went, you know, I went to college. I, I, I've worked at a few different companies. I had a lot of mentors. Uh, learned a lot from these people. And to become an entrepreneur, you know, my approach was just I work either as a consultant or I save up money. I take that money, I start a company, I burn it to the ground while failing, learn as much <laughs> as I can from that, and then rinse and repeat. So you know, I went back and forth between you know, trying to be entrepreneurial and then also trying to have the money to do it. And you know, as uh, strange as it is, you know, by the time that I succeeded my, my first fairly su- uh, big success, which was a previous company called Sombrail, I, I started that company in 2008, which was like right at the beginning of the, uh, the big downturn with the economy. And mm-hmm. I had two you know, kids in elementary school school and a wife and that sort of thing. So probably not the, the most sane thing to have done, but um, it panned out pretty well for me, so I can't complain. Okay, so we jumped quite a bit. We went from 18 years old to 2008. What was you doing in between that time? And what were you working on or working for? And what was your degree in in, in university? So my, my degree was in computer science. At the time, there wasn't that many com- universities that offered computer science degrees. So more EE engineering degrees and that sort of a thing. So I ended up going to New York Tech after not doing so well at University of Cincinnati. And then I was never a great student. I'm a good student for stuff I want to learn to be able to do things. And right. that's kind of, to me, is one of the biggest skills a person needs in software engineering is use Google, try to figure out how to fix a problem and have a have the motivation and the drive to be able to just grind it out. And so I gotten good at that. I'd worked at quite a few small companies. I worked at a few larger ones for short periods of time, but I found out very quickly I didn't like that. The whole politics, bureaucracy thing is not something which I'm good at and mm-hmm. I don't really enjoy. We're working at smaller companies. In, in New York, I worked at a couple startups. Uh, there weren't a lot of startups back then in the, in the late 80s, early 90s. There was not really a startup community there. So the few that I got to work for was was really educational for me. But then when I found I wanted to kind of grow and go somewhere else, I decided to move to the West Coast. And I, I, I interviewed at Microsoft in Seattle and it, found, you know, it rained a little too much there for me. And I ended up moving to Southern California and working for Canon there for a short period of time. But then leaving after about a month or so because the group I was working for actually broke off and started a, a startup. Okay. And so they hired me away from there. I was kind of like the part of the 
parting gift, I guess, okay. for them. So I incidentally ended up working for a lot of small companies and I was fortunate that way because I could, I could learn from all these different entrepreneurs and see what they do. And you know, obviously, if you can learn from somebody else's mistakes, that's you know, more valuable than learning from your own mistakes because right. you don't have to pay for them at least. You know, I, I just, I'm, I'm sorry to keep harping on the entrepreneur aspect of your life, but I just always think that that's such a, everybody wants to talk about being an entrepreneur, and, and but it's so hard to do, especially when you have two small children <laughs> and you know you, you have to pay bills, you are in a position where it's either you know you you succeed or you fail bigly yeah because you do have all of that risk it's not just personal risk it's not financial risk but it's the risk of people that depend on you what do you tell people when they say i want to be an entrepreneur i want to do it by myself maybe they don't like the politics like you said maybe they don't like working for people and punching clocks and they think that they're wasting their life what would you tell these people that if they want to take the plunge well, for most people, I, uh, I've, I've, I've advised a lot of startups and I've talked to a lot of people who want to be entrepreneurs. I've even uh, spoken at a couple of universities, like the entrepreneurial programs. And the first question I always ask people is, are you sure you want to be an entrepreneur? Because I, I look at on being an entrepreneur very similar to being an artist, whether it's like a musical artist or it's a fine artist and that sort of thing. Generally speaking, the life of an artist and the life of an entrepreneur is not something which is guaranteed to be pleasant. Mm-hmm. Um, there's many artists that are amazing artists, but a lot of their, their fame might even come after they die, for example. And they don't necessarily get the recognition which they deserve during their lifetime or at all in many cases just because they're they're undiscovered. And so the reason a person should be an artist or the reason a person should be an entrepreneur is because they have no choice. They're just compelled to do it. Mm -hmm. And that's how I feel. I feel like I'm compelled to be an entrepreneur. It's the the life and the experience that I want. And even when I sold my my previous company and I probably could have decided to to retire at that point in time, I don't really have any hobbies. I just love doing what I do. I love writing (laughs) software. I love being an entrepreneur. And so I'm compelled. So it's kind of like, imagine if an artist sold a piece for $10 million and then it's like, okay, I'm done now. I've made my $10 million. I'm going to go play golf. Right. A real artist would be just like, well, now it's kind of cool. Now I've got some more freedom. I can go paint all day long, right? right? And that's kind of me where I'm like, well, now I have some freedom. I can go and, and write the software I want to write. And in many ways, I, I view XY, XYO as that. It's, it's, it's the thing which I want to build as opposed to the thing which I feel like we need to build to make money or someone's paying me to build and that sort of thing. So it's it's much more of a, of a passion project for me, which really makes me really happy to go to work. That's awesome. Before we go into what we're here to talk about is GPS, the history of GPS and what you're doing with it. Can you please tell us briefly what is XYO? XYO. So um, XYO is it's a complicated thing. A lot of people think about it as location. You know, we talk about location on there a lot. And location is very important for it. But XYO is really a, a system that collects metadata from the world and collects it and analyzes it and does interesting things with it for the users and for the system at large. And I, I kind of started this with this concept called Webble. That was the original name for the company in 2012 when I started it. And I view the world as this collection of objects. There's all these different objects, uh, whether it's humans or phones or tables or countries or whatever it is. And they all have metadata about them. They all have this um, this set of data which defines who they are. So if you look at a human being, for example, your brain, what you have stored in there, your memories, your view of the world is your your reality, basically. Mm-hmm. And so each person has their own reality, their own perspective on the world, which also that view has really gotten me to become much more of a, a, an accepting person. I, I always accept people for what they are because I know from their perspective and their reality, what they're doing is always trying to be the best for being happy themselves. Right. It may not align with me and I have to understand that, but accepting them for what they are it's a lot easier when you understand the the, the way that the that there's the system works. And so I looked at the world that way and I wanted to build a system where you can take all that and you can figure out how to interact all that, that data and make it useful. And there's a lot of data sources out there right now which already exist. But one of the big problems comes down to how do you make this data certain? How do you know that, that the data you got actually is accurate? And also this data is not very useful unless it's actually specified of where or when it was collected. So XYZT is really the coordinate system which we live in as humans in our reality. 
reality or shared reality, should I say. So all your memories, all the photos you have, all the, the things you've heard, if you ask yourself, well, where did I hear that? Or where did I see that? Or where did I think that? Or where did I experience that? Or where did I taste that? You either will think about it from a relative standpoint, oh, I tasted that food at a certain restaurant. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, from a relative standpoint, you don't have to necessarily know, oh, where it was this restaurant, but this restaurant was in New York or it was in Beijing or wherever it was. But then also when you see things, you always kind of think in your mind of, of an absolute location. Oh, I was at Disney World in Southern California and that sort of thing. So humans are very good at mapping things to an absolute location based on the collection of data that they have, which actually puts it there. But given a system and all this data that they have, there's no way to know these absolute locations except for the fact that we've all kind of agreed on certain certain axioms. We've agreed that, oh, this um, the city that has all these buildings and it's called New York. And then GPS came along and you know, we come up with a whole new system where you say, well, instead of just using these, these names, like, you know, Where's New York? Where's Chicago? Where's LA? Mm-hmm. We'll use these longitudes and latitudes, and basically the surface of the Earth is, or sea level is, really the zero on the vector from the center of the Earth. So they came up with this whole mapping system, and that's kind of where GPS comes in. It's to allow us to communicate between each other an absolute concept for all these relative data points we have in our minds. So the whole point of XYO, kind of back to your original question, mm-hmm. there, the whole point of XYO is to be able to build these data sets and collect data sets for things, whether it's humans or you know, anything in the world, and see how those things interact and be able to make almost a data movie, for lack of a better term, out of the world. And I kind of look at it as right now, we're kind of in the same place that movies were when they went from photos to moving pictures. Mm-hmm. You know, we had photos for a long time and then say, oh, we can make these movie movies and motion pictures out of them. And it's a lot more interesting to see a motion picture than it is to see just a photo. And it's kind of the same thing with IoT and with data on the internet. So I can take a snapshot and see, well, what are the stats of baseball right now. But being able to look at something over time and how they interacted and all these devices, how they moved individually between themselves, you can reconstruct an entire baseball game, for example, if you have all the the locations of all the the people who are playing, where they are, where the the ball's going, and you have this almost a a three-dimensional or four-dimensional, if you count T in there, DVR of reality. And Mm -hmm. that's really what XBIO is at the end of the day. It's a four-dimensional DVR of reality. And we have to use location as the way to be able to have a mapping system for that so you can say, well, where does this metadata go and how does it relate to each other? So when you said you have to have T in there, T would be time, correct? Correct, it's time. Okay, excellent. So we're talking about mapping actual location. This all started with... Well, we had maps, physical maps, pieces of paper that I remember going down uh, the freeway with a Brand McNally map in the back seat of the car. My mom would pull it out from the back and draw on it, and we would plan the pit stops. But then we switched to GPS. And can you tell us how GPS started and how it became public use? Okay, so um, my understanding of the history of GPS is primarily you know, we had this this mapping system, the longitudes and latitudes, and we you know started off, I assume, in Europe because since uh, zero is England or it's, you know, it's um, all the way out there. We had the system, but it was very difficult for something to know, like, well, where where are you in the world right now for this system? So what the U.S. decided to do, and I think primarily for initially for military uses, was they launched um, about 24 satellites or so into high Earth orbit. And what you could do from the Earth is any device which could hear these different signals from these different satellites, which all has synchronized clocks on it. You could actually triangulate from those, and you can see where on this longitude-latitude system on the surface of the Earth that you are. But it's calibrated for the surface of the Earth, and it's calibrated for the specific use. Mm-hmm. There's some variation, obviously, when you get more to the poles because the, the math changes a little bit at those different angles. So I think the accuracy and the size of the, the meters gets a little bit different or a little bit worse there. And so the accuracy is probably better at the, at the circumference or the, um, the equator right. of the Earth. So the purpose of it was to be able to have a device or a thing be able to 
determine where in the world it was without having to figure it out just by looking at heuristics. Like, oh, where's the mountains? Like, you usually you know, navigate with a ship where, oh, where's the mountains or where's the lighthouse or where's those things? Now you could basically just add, ask these signals, these radio signals you're getting from space, take those, run some math on them, and it'll give you the answer. And so it's it's almost like a, a super high-tech sextant, if you're familiar with what, what a sextant was back in the, the day when they used the stars to navigate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it was a huge, huge invention, in my opinion. I think it was something which really, really changed the world. And it was not until the 90s when all the satellites were up there, and it became a system that was being used throughout the world. And fortunately, the, the U.S. made it in such a way that it was open for anybody to use. You could just look at these signals. There are some asterisks about that open to use, because I think there are accuracy limitations which, which they put on it, and there's also certain things they can do to, you know, to jam it. And it's a, it's a one-way protocol, so it has some certain limitations, definitely. Why would they make it free for everybody to use? At large, it was going to be used anyway because it's it's hard to prevent people from using it but besides that i think just the fact that it's the practical world-changing use of it is so big that from an economy standpoint from the things you can do it was so valuable why would you not do that so you know the cost of of transporting stuff by ship or by airplane or um, the safety for airplanes all those things are substantially positively impacted by it and, and in many ways i view x by o the same way I, I think the biggest reason i have so much passion for x by o is not only because you know it's something which can grow and it's a company and accomplish something or make money off it but more importantly I actually think if X by O reaches the, the pinnacle of what I think it can be, it would be as world-changing as GPS is, if not more, because it's just something which we have to evolve to to be able to make the sharing of, of data better. Hey everyone, I just want to take a break from our conversation to tell you about the XYO Fireside Chat starring Mr. Marcus East, CTO of National Geographic, during Consensus Week in New York City, May 13th at 6pm. During this chat, we'll be able to have some cocktails, some canapes, have a chat with Mr. Marcus East about data, data sharing on a global scale, and ask questions in an intimate setting about National Geographic's push for a digital future and how data can help save the world. So join us in New York. I'll be there. Marcus will be there. Marcus, the COO of XYO Network, also will be there and on the panel, as well as a lot of blockchain advocates here to make a difference. Click the link in the description. It's events.xy.company and use my promo code CRYPTO101 for 30% off the tickets. That's events.xy.company, promo code CRYPTO101 for 30% off. Let's go into the evolution of and what XYO is going to do in the future in a little bit. Um, but I'm a little, okay, I'm still a little confused. There's 24 satellites up, up there, right? And they are handling all of this data for everybody in the United States or around the, around the world. How is that even possible? Is, is, are we actually talking to satellites up there all the time? Or is there a different, different like, uh, a different system in, in play, like maybe cell towers or, or different things to allow for us to have accurate GPS down here? Well, uh, it's not a two-way protocol, so we don't actually talk back to that system. What, so, what is two-way protocol? Well, um, like we only listen to the signals coming off of the, um, the satellites. We don't broadcast the signal back to the satellites. So for your phone to, to get GPS locations, all it has to do is it has to listen to these satellites. So it's very similar to, if you think about it, imagine there's 24 lighthouses that were launched into space mm-hmm. and each lighthouse instead of broadcasting light it broadcasts um, a radio wave but okay. imagine if each one of them was a, a little bit of a different color so now the person who's observing these things can they can see okay well this is the satellite number 23 or satellite number eight or whatever it is and they can see where, where they are and so if i know which satellites they are and how strong those lights are from from them and what angle they are 
I can basically use that math to figure out where I am on Earth from the longitude and latitude standpoint. So it's a one-way protocol from the standpoint it's sending data to me, but I'm not never sending data back to it. So it's extremely efficient from the standpoint that millions or billions of people can actually use these signals without having to uh, have a, a scaling problem at all because there's no need to send data back, right? Mm -hmm. But that also is one of its major limitations, the fact that it's a one-way protocol that's there. But then what a lot of companies have done with Google and Apple and you know, phone companies, they've found ways to actually even improve the accuracy of GPS. Because GPS is normally about a, a, a 10 meter accuracy on the surface of the earth, okay, uh, varying depending on where you are. But what they've done is they use things like, like known SSIDs from Wi-Fi, for example, to enhance the GPS location, or they use cell tower triangulation. But those other ones you know, by themselves aren't that accurate. So cell tower tri uh, triangulation might be, say, a kilometer or half a kilometer accuracy. But if you combine that with your GPS location and the SSIDs and the fingerprinting of other things, you actually get a, a very enhanced location that you have on your phone. So that's how they prove the, the accuracy of your GPS on your phone. So, for example, if you have a, a tablet that does not have Wi-Fi and you only use GPS, you'll notice that the accuracy of your dot on your map is worse. My mind is now blown because that's why my Apple uh, device always tells me to turn on my Wi-Fi for more accuracy within the GPS. Exactly. And yeah. I, I had no clue yeah, why. They're, they're basically they're listening to all these Wi-Fi signals out there, and they, they've learned, like, if you go to the airport, there's, oh, at the airport, there is this Wi-Fi signal at this place, and they kind of aggregate all this data, which is actually um, a very similar thing to what XBio does um, mm -hmm. as well, of how we actually get very accurate data and very accurate interactions. The big difference is that um, in that enhanced mode for the phone, um, it's very difficult. You know, they kind of just listen to these things and they trust they don't move. But um, in theory, if I wanted to really mess up your location on there, I can pretend that you're at the airport by just going in and recording all the, the different SSIDs that are there and broadcast them near you as if you're at the airport. So your phone will, will be confused because it'll be, oh, I see all these SSIDs that I would normally see when I'm at the San Diego airport. I must be at the San Diego airport. But it turns out you're not. You're just being spoofed. And so spoofing is a huge, huge problem for location. So that goes into the next question. Obviously, what is wrong with GPS? What is spoofing? I mean, for me, I mean, I take my Ubers perfectly fine. My Apple Maps opens and gets me to my destinations perfectly fine. What is wrong with GPS? So um, nothing's wrong with GPS. For certain uses, it's perfect. Like, uh, for example, a navigation system in a car. I, I, I wouldn't say, well, use the XBIO navigation system in your car instead of GPS. Mm -hmm. That's not where XBIO shines at all. Uh, GPS is great for a lot of those uses. But when certainty becomes more important, that's when it starts uh, fading a little bit. For example, mm -hmm. we've had an incident where I think the, one of the U.S. drones had landed in Iran because Iran had, had broadcast artificial GPS locations to make it think it was oh, near wow. the base and it wasn't actually near the base. So it landed, and then they can go and grab it. So you can actually trick it into where it's going to go. One of the most common spoofing things I've seen is Pokemon Go or those sorts of games. So mm -hmm. if you want to go to Africa to collect all your Pokemon Go that's only available in Africa, it's a lot cheaper to just installing a spoofing app on your Android phone than actually flying to Africa, right? Okay. So people can then collect all these different things. So if you want to know, was well, this person actually in Africa? Using GPS as that certainty is very, very inaccurate or uncertain because it's very easy to fake that because it's a one directional protocol. There's there's no way for me to say where it is. I can even, for that reason, relay it. I can say, okay, well, I'm going to have a, a thing which is recording all the GPS locations in Africa and in real time or close to real time, send it to your phone and your phone can basically you know, mirror where it, the other device is in Africa. And so it's just, I can completely spoof where you think you are by changing all the different data points that you're looking at. The military aircraft landing in Iran, first of all, I didn't even know that was a GPS spoof. That's amazing, first of all. But what are other applications where GPS spoofing can either inhibit the development for our future or actually cause major problems nowadays? Because Pokemon Go, I could care less about Pokemon or Pikachu, <laughs> right? But what is 
the spoofing of GPS and how is that going to hinder our progression to uh, new new tech, modern tech? Well, spoofing is probably the most easy way to, to show the example of it, but there's also just lying about the data point, right? Where mm -hmm. if I, for example, have a, a logistics company and I'm shipping a bunch of stuff for, for Walmart mm -hmm. and or I want to say to you that this thing went the correct route that it's supposed to go and here's my ledger that has all my GPS locations I was supposed to be at. How do I know these GPS readings were accurate? How do I know I just didn't just make them up? Hey guys, TiVo here to tell you about the Eufy Video Lock, a smart lock, a 2K camera, and a doorbell all in one. That's right, three in one for triple the security. It's easy to install. All you need is a Phillips screwdriver, no drilling required. It gives you keyless entry, so no more fumbling your keys when you have your hands full coming back from the grocery store. No more worry about the kids losing a house key. No more worry about a guest losing the house key or forgetting the passcode on your door. And for Airbnbers, it's a no-brainer as you can change the passcode at will between renters. It has available fingerprint recognition and it has AI self-learning chips. So the more you use it, the more accurate it's going to be. You will have no anxiety with the battery charging. It is a rechargeable battery and it lasts around four months. But don't worry, when it's low, it'll give you plenty of weeks notice. And also, it always comes with a physical key as a backup. There's no monthly fee, unlike other brands that charge you a monthly fee to get your backup recording. Recordings, they're always recorded locally and you will always have access. Customer support for the Eufy Video Lock is 24-7, so you don't have to worry about any issues you have, and it comes with an 18-month warranty. What I love about this product is it is truly all-in-one. With the three-in-one, you don't have to go out and buy multiple parts. It's all in this package with the Eufy Video Lock. So if you're interested in learning more, go on Amazon and search Eufy Video Lock. That's E-U-F-Y Video Lock or visit eufyofficial.com slash video lock. Again, that's E-U-F-Y Video Lock. Eufy Video Lock. Get complete control over your front door. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There's no way for me to go and ask the GPS satellite to confirm did Ari actually read this thing from you or not. So in the cases for enterprise or for a lot of other things, this this uh, chain of custody, for example, for items or a, a whole audit trail for something is really hard to do automatically, especially if the data which you're gathering is not something which is coming from a centralized trusted system. So one cool thing that XYO really does is allows you to trust data from untrusted sources. So if someone says to me, hey, I was at this location, the person can prove it because they can give me the support 
reporting data of other devices that it interacted with while I was there. And I can go verify that those interactions actually happened because I can go and look for the data of those other devices that were there and so on and so forth. It's not as simple as just saying, I saw this SSID or I saw this GPS device or I saw this Bluetooth signature. We also collect those also because they definitely help us calibrate the system so to tell us, well, how accurate is this? But as far as the certainty goes, having the other party co-opt it um, is very important. So uh, the way I describe it to many people is if imagine if you had to go through life and take selfies with every single person you came across. Mm-hmm. And th- that selfie, both of you guys sign, so you know it's, it's definitely certain that that person was there. And then you put it in the ledger, and the ledger will permanently forever be in the exact same order you put it in there. And if you remove one of those pictures, you'll know it's gone. You, you don't want to know what was on it, but you'll know it's, it's missing. That is kind of what the XBIO proof of origin chain is. Obviously, it's too problematic for a person to literally take a photo with every single person they come in contact with and have both parties sign it. Mm-hmm. And also, signatures aren't that secure. If you just take that and make a digital photo, which is a little handshake that these two different devices do, you have both of them sign it cryptographically using blockchain technology or crypto technology, and then you put it into a local blockchain where it links those to themselves, you end up with a ledger which is effectively exactly the same thing as that selfie stack that a person would have. And then you can actually prove who you saw and it's collaborated by somebody else. So location or relative location or relative proximity is actually an interesting heuristic from the standpoint that it's one of the few ones that you can actually corroborate from somebody else. Because if I if my phone talks to your phone and we both sign the fact that we were within a certain distance from each other, because we know the strength of the signal of the connection, it's something that yet two parties actually agree upon, where having a GPS you know, satellite confirm that you read it or a thermometer confirm that you read it for that reason, all those are one directional heuristics and they're not they're not co-optable. So relative proximity is, is very, very interesting that way. Um, absolute proximity or absolute location is a lot more difficult then. Okay, so I'm going to have to just slow this down a little bit because you just blew right past my my understanding. Let, let's, let's use your Walmart truck as an example again. And can we just go through the step-by-step of how a solution to GPS would work using that truck to verify its location or its path of delivering goods? So say, for example, you know you have multiple parties that are, are shipping this thing. So you have Walmart who wants to buy it at the end. You have a company uh, that's producing ice cream in the beginning. Mm-hmm. It's not Walmart. Um, they have their own systems in place. You have a trucking company that's actually driving this thing across country. And it has to stay refrigerated. Okay, so Ben & Jerry's gets a truck. They put the Ben & Jerry's in the truck, and they're going to deliver it to Walmart. Yes, but say the truck is not even them. It's a third-party trucking company. Okay. So they have a factory. So what you do is you have a device on the, the case of ice cream that's there, and you have a thermometer on there. And then when... The, the to make sure that the ice cream stays cold, of course. Right, so it stays cold. But it was produced at the factory. So when it checked in with the other XYO devices at the factory, okay. you can know that it actually came from the Ben & Jerry's factory. It's not some fake Ben & Jerry's ice cream from somewhere else. It's actually from the factory because the only way it could have gotten that first signature was to actually talk to the device at the Ben & factory, Ben & Jerry's factory. Then when it travels along in this truck, even if the truck driver is like, oh, I'm going to stop here or I'm going to you know, not you know, use the, the power to keep it cold, all these things are being recorded and they can't be changed. And then mm-hmm. when it gets delivered to Walmart, Walmart can take that and then they, they sign the other end of it to say, hey, we've now actually gotten this full set of data of factory, uh, carrier, and then the reception of it. And they can look at that and make sure that all the data points suggest that the, the temperature was cold all along, not just when they received it. Because normally now when you receive it, you actually get ice cream. And you're like, well, it's cold, but it may have melted along the way and right. be all gooey, but it was cold when I got it. So how do I know? This mm-hmm. allows you to know it was cold all along and also guarantees it came from the Ben & Jerry's factory as opposed to somewhere else. Now, ice cream is not that important 
important as where it came from, but if it's a part to go into, say, uh, aircraft or into a computer, and you want to make sure this is not a part that was uh, taken somewhere or changed or altered or somehow fake, it can be very, very important to make sure you know where the origin is. And being able to have a, a piece of data that you can verify on receipt that actually proves the origin of something mm -hmm. and proves that the journey of it without you having to go out and ask an authority, well, can you please sign off on the fact that this actually came from your factory? Well, how does the guy at the factory know whether the thing in your hands is the thing he actually sent you? Maybe it got changed somewhere in the middle. This allows you to actually look at that whole journey. And so it provides a whole much more certainty for that voyage. And there's so many very you know, valuable and important uses for that. Even for medical research, for example, if right. you want to, you, know, you start off with a whole bunch of people in a, a research project, you can't just remove them because then you know it's been um, altered. Mm -hmm. And so you have all the data all the way through there. So at the end, you can say, well, here's my data for it. And you can validate that data. So increasing the certainty of data is by far the most important thing that XBIO does. Um, we don't increase the accuracy. It's not like our thermometers are going to be more accurate than the next thermometer, but we can prove that this was actually a, a reading that was read by this device. So with this journey, this with the data in this journey, this is all being recorded on a blockchain. Correct. And we, you have decided to use Ethereum blockchain for this, a public blockchain. What is the benefits of using, say, blockchain technology for this? Is public blockchains the best way or private blockchains? Is there different ways that companies can set this up? Because I, I get it now. I get it. The, the, the com Ben & Jerry's has their ice cream. It's cold. The truck driver is driving. He stops over. He stops at like a Hardee's because like his Hardee's are at uh, stop truck stops for some reason. I don't know why. I can't find him anywhere else, but at truck stops. He gets a Hardee's. He sits there for too long, falls asleep. The ice cream melts. Oh, starts back up the, the truck, turns, cranks up the, the, the cooler. It gets cold again. Nobody even is wiser. But when Walmart gets it, they can look at this whole data set and go, hey, you were, you were sleeping for eight hours over there. The ice cream melted and we can see this. And then finally we get our delivery. This is what you're saying. So let's go into the blockchain aspect of this. What, what, what is the benefits of Ethereum blockchain or different blockchains for this? Well, so uh, just uh, one one uh, point of detail there is um, our data actually is not stored on Ethereum blockchain. We, okay. we use Ethereum as if a person wants to use a smart contract to interact with XYO mm. and be able to use it as an oracle to answer a question. So say, for example, uh, Walmart wants to automatically pay the truck driver with Ethereum okay. when it's delivered. Our system can basically be used as an oracle where automatically you can ask it, was this thing frozen the entire time over the last three days? And our system can say, yes, it was, and then automatically pay the truck driver. So you don't even have to inspect it. You can actually have the smart contract go ahead and process that payment for the person without having to have somebody go and manually look at a ledger or some sort of checkboxes because we can do that. So the integration into Ethereum or into smart contracts is something which is a, a very interesting and important part of our system. However, um, you don't have to use smart contracts to, to access it. You can use APIs to access our system because the blockchains that we produce, they're XBIO proof of origin chains, basically. And they, they don't require centralized, or sorry, they don't require uh, decentralized consensuses or you know, a, a consensus system the way that Ethereum or any of these blockchain public networks work because they by themselves are verifiable. So they're, they're basically a zero knowledge proof which exists as a blockchain. So I can go and analyze this data that you're giving me. So you give me, say it's a, a 10 or 20K file that has say 40 or 50 or 100 or 1,000 entries in it and they're all blockchain from when this thing was was sent to me, if I can just verify that the first few actually were signed by the ones from the factory, 
I can just ask the factory, well, give me the IDs of your system and I can go verify that myself. I don't have to have any sort of consensus. And so it's very, very efficient oh, wow. from that standpoint. There's no scaling problem from having to have a consensus system on there. I would assume that you'd have to put, like, let's use the ice cream journey again. You'd have to probably put the exact ice cream journey or what the expected journey into that contract first. And then any, any deviation from that journey would be not executable? Correct. So what you would do is, um, you know, it could be as simple as, you know, so it had to be there in three days. Mm -hmm. And if it took more than three days, that you don't get paid. So what you do is the person will say, well, here's the address of the end of the chain that I got, which is when I signed it, I, I signed this chain. Here's the address of that. Uh, here's the rest of the blockchain. And we can go then, the, this, our system will look up in the rest of our divine, our archivists to get the rest of the data and see uh, when that was signed by the um, original factory. And we can see how long that took. So if the criteria for getting paid is less than three days transit, then it would see how long that chain is. And if it was more than three days transit, then we wouldn't pay them. I would assume even with GPS, you would probably be able to, to schedule their stops in there as well and make sure that they hit all these checkpoints. Like it, could, it could get pretty detailed, couldn't it? It could, but how do you know that those GPS things are actually accurate? How mm -hmm. you know, they're not signed, right? So uh, if I go and I go and edit those GPS entries that are in there, unless I, I put a device of some sort that's you know, that's untamperable in the box, that, you know, that no one can get to it. An XYL Sentinel maybe? Yeah, well, it could do that, but, but for GPS, GPS, if you just did that, um, now you have to worry about, well, what happens if a person you know, uh, changes that device or you know, they, they get to that device? In this case, you have three different devices from uh, that are owned by three different people. You have a device that's owned by the trucking company, you have a mm -hmm. device that's owned by the factory, and a device that's owned by Walmart. And they can all share data, and all of them trust the other one's data. Where normally, like if I said, okay, well, I'm the trucking company, believe me that the, my, my GPS device collected this data for you. Mm -hmm. That would be something which I would not normally you know, trust the person to do, right? Right. Uh, I would want to have my own device on there. So either the factory, so Ben and Jerry's would say would insist on having their GPS device on the truck, or Walmart might insist to have their GPS device on the truck because they only trust their device. XYO allows each person to use their own device, and then all that data together actually is trustable by all three parties. Would this change at all with driverless trucks or any kind of innovation in the future, this whole concept with the smart contracts? Well, it doesn't change that much. Um, it actually, driverless will be better for us because it also allows you to keep track on um, devices or that don't have a human there, right? Mm -hmm. So if I'm a trucking company, I want to have my XYO device on there. I want to prove that this thing went where it went and how fast it went there. I, I may also want to prove that it, it didn't go over the speed limit or it. Uh, I want to see the history of, of where it is. Maybe even there's a device on there from the manufacturer of the truck. And so if I want to trust the manufacturer's data on there, like we saw what happened with Audi, you know, they faked the data for the emissions. So if I want to trust the data from the manufacturer, I can you know, interact with that with my device as well. So now you can add three, four, five, you can have 10 or 15 different parties that are all building this giant chain together and I can trust all the data that's on there. So for self-driving trucks, especially since it's out of your site and you don't have an agent on there, which is a human being, which you can ask, well, what happened here or what happened there? It also is nice from the standpoint is if you have multiple trucks, they could talk to each other. So right. did now say I send four trucks out, they're all driverless. Did they all stay together, or mm. you know, how far apart were they? Uh, what well, what happened to the one that you know that went away and then came back? Maybe it had a flat tire and then had to fix itself. So, right that inter-device communication and the ledger of all that it makes your knowledge of basically it's a DVR of the voyage of these trucks that went across the country with your thing. So it, back to my original thing I said, where this is a four-dimensional data DVR of the world. Um, you can measure anything you want to, whether it's a voyage of trucks, whether it's a vacation, or whether it's you know, any, any sort of historical thing you want to have uh, in a much more in-depth uh, way than simple photos does or simple 
uh, paperwork does. Before we get into general questions, I want you to tell me a hypothetical story. Amazon is wants to do drone delivery. This is what we keep hearing, drone delivery. They're renting space. They're going to take these big drones. They're going to drop packages off at your doorstep and then fly away. If you were going to integrate your system into the Amazon drone delivery, what would it look like and how would it work? Well, the, the, the first thing you'd have to do... If is, you could. Oh, wait, wait, if we, well, we have to get their permission, of course. Of course. But um, what they want to have out of our system is certainty, not mm -hmm. accuracy. So one thing that they do right now is they um, will have the delivery guy take a picture of where they put the box. So if they want to prove at the end it was delivered, here's the picture. But things can happen. If I had this problem happen recently, I ordered something from Amazon and I accidentally picked the wrong address. It was an old address of um, a house I used to live in. Right. But ironically, that house was being demolished. So then I look at the picture of, <laughs> well, where did they deliver this thing? So you see a construction fence with a box behind it and a house being demolished behind it. So I was like, well, this is probably not where I wanted it to be delivered. And so they could look at that also and, and kind of like figure out where it was. However, if I said, well, I want this to be delivered, here's the address of my beacon. Mm -hmm. And it has to interact with my beacon for it to be considered delivered. I would not have left a beacon at the, at the construction site. I would have, so they would have known not to deliver it. And they don't also have to take a photo. The photo is really big, right? It's very large metadata. It's maybe, say, you know, a couple hundred K that right. they have to store somewhere. If they could store a digital signature and the interaction with the beacon at my house or my, my front door or my phone, it's a way, way smaller piece of metadata that's just as certain, if not actually more certain than the actual photograph is. So it would be a way for these drones to be able to get the same benefit of having the photograph at the end of where it was delivered. But it would do a few things. One is uh, there's more privacy because what happens if that photograph contains something and I don't want it to contain? Right. It has the you know, the passcode for my front door or something. Right. I, that the person just happened to take that photo. Um, and also, it's just much smaller. So it's much, much more practical. It's much faster and it's more certain. And um, there's many, many ways why that's better than just the actual photo. So people are already trying to do similar things of, you know, how, how do I provide certainty that this box was ever delivered to a person's house? I take a picture of their house. But right. they, I, I've seen in these pictures also, they take a picture like on the ground of this thing sitting on the floor. Right. They don't take a picture <laughs> of like the front of your house because what happens if you take a picture of the front of your house and one of the windows is me walking around in my underwear because I right. just took a shower. Right. So they're very limited on how they can take these pictures anyway so they yeah you know, it's not a perfect system at all but the fact that they're using these pictures to do that shows that there's a definite need there but the journey would still be the same the journey would still be the drone from the uh say the storage facility picking up the box flying through the air dropping it off and then it'll come in contact with this here, here's the drone flying because we're watching it on the video here the drone's flying it comes into a certain perimeter of this beacon and boop it knows that it's there once it uh, leaves the box there is that how it would work Exactly, exactly. And even as it passes other drones, it'll see which other drones it passed. It can okay. hand, hand it off to a different drone, and you can see like the, the ledger of it went from drone A to drone B to drone C, or it went to depot. So it can give you a much more detailed history of how it traveled, rather than right now, if you've ever looked at the, the tracking number from a UPS package or something, usually it's as, as simple as you know, it went to you know, the, the UPS store where the person right. delivered it, it went to some sort of depot somewhere, right. it went to a delivery truck, and it went to your house. Right? Right. There's like these four data points, and they kind of got checked in because somebody scanned it and, you know, so, yep, right. it's here. But imagine if you could have a ledger where it shows you on the road, you know, every single place you know, it went, and you, know, you can have 100 or 200 data points of the travel. Not only for the person receiving the package is that interesting um, to be able to, to see when it's going to get to your house, but also for the, um, the company which is using it, like the UPSs of the world, they can actually use that analytics to be able to analyze their system and how do you improve it and how do you actually learn to make a more efficient system if these things are spending, four, say, 40% of the time all you know, in an area where they shouldn't be necessarily or potentially you can hand them off. So you can actually automate driverless UPS trucks to optimize, well, when do you switch 
packages from one to the other, or you know, this one's kind of empty, and you can still check it in. Where if you have a driverless UPS truck and I want to move packages from one to the other, there's no person there to scan them in, right? Mm -hmm. It's really hard to scan them in. So this would make it so I can hand off packages from one truck to another that's driverless and have a certainty that it actually went from one truck to the other and didn't get pilfered. But what would your... Right now, if you would want to do this, you said you'd have to have a device. You, your device would be a physical hardware that you'd put somewhere in your house or you'd have on your on your person or what have you. What would the house of the future look like? Would they be XYO integrated? Would it be powered by XYO? Or would Amazon come out and just like start installing uh, little sentinels on everybody's front door so they can interact with this device? What would, what would it look like for you? Well, um, yeah, I, I do think that at a, at a point that every every home is going to become a smart home. It already is getting there to some degree. You, know, you have the Google Assistant and the Alexas of the world. You have Fire TV and, and those things. So they're getting smarter. But we're going to get to a point where you have all these different devices and all those sorts of things. But one of the big problems right now with our current smart systems is Apple doesn't trust Google's data. Google doesn't trust Apple's data. And no, nobody trusts uh, uh, Amazon's data either, right? So they're not going to be able to exchange data between all those. Right. However, if you have a system where the certainty of this data is actually measured in there and they can communicate with each other, then you can actually have a smart home that is holistically combined. And so our goal would be for us to have um, all these devices at your house be able to speak the same language, basically, which is X by O, and they all sign off on it. So if I see some data which is bad in the future and say, oh, but this, this Alexa device signed off on it, now I'm going to start questioning, well, why did this, this Alexa device sign off on it? Is it bad? Is it corrupt? Did it get you know, hacked or something? Mm -hmm. And then so you can actually see where the problems are. And so now you can start interchanging data between devices. So at the end of the day, I personally view one of the biggest problems with IoT today is the lack of interoperability between data between different providers because mm. of lack of trust. Okay. And the only way you can actually get that trust is by using cryptography to put your reputation or to put your stake on the line for this, the quality of this data. Otherwise, you know, nobody will uh, trust the other person's data. That's pretty interesting. All right, Troll, before I ask you, the, you a couple of these last questions and go into general questions, is there anything else that you would like to touch on about this whole concept? Because this is pretty deep, pretty broad. Actually, it's pretty exciting because I, I'm thinking of a smart home in the future, IoT all over it, my refrigerator's signing in my packages from Amazon. It, it, it's exciting. What, what, what else would you like to mention about this? Well, I think it's extremely exciting. I think like any any great invention, it's got the problem of good and evil, right? Mm -hmm. it's, there's there's certain things that are you know, good and bad is going to happen with them. And one of the questions I often get, which we probably don't have enough time to go into today, could perhaps be a, a future topic, is the privacy aspect of this. So you know, I mentioned like the photograph from Amazon. You know, they can't just take a picture of your front of your house because of the privacy questions. But this also has its own privacy concerns because now you can track other things. You know, if your phone is your sentinel for your person, you know, it's your avatar, that phone could be a way to track you, right? So people right. are like, well, how do I prevent myself from being tracked or how do I have privacy in this? And the whole question of whether the limitations should be put on data collection or the use of data and data abuse is a, a, a very interesting and hot topic right now in the world. And my personal belief is I kind of lean towards the legislation and all those sorts of things should be focused more on the use and abuse of data because the collection of data is something which is going to get just better and better and better. Mm -hmm. And it's it's too hard to keep that down. So you're already bleeding and hemorrhaging data every day. If you walk around the street, there's cameras that can see you. There's uh, You're dropping DNA from skin flecks on the ground, right? right? So you're already hemorrhaging data all all over the place. So for us to say, well, you know, just because we can collect more and more and more of this data, we should stop collecting data. To me, that's a very reactionary way of looking at it, and it's going to slow down progress in many ways. I think we should really focus on the how how to prevent people from abusing data, for example. So if a person goes and picks up your your skin flecks and they throw it away or they clean it up or they don't do bad things, but not a big problem. But if they go that and try and clone you, you probably would not 
want to do it as much, right? <laughs> right? So what you do with the data to me is much more important than how you collect it and that sort of thing. So I, I think that's a, a, a very interesting part of this whole X by O thing is the, what's the value of data? What's the importance of data? Why should we be sharing data with each other? Why should the world care about data? Why is deleting data bad or changing data bad? And this also is one of the reasons XPIO exists because you can't change data in it, which is nice. It's kind of back to the blockchain thing, mm -hmm. making it so that if you do remove data, it's evident the data was removed. And so the whole concept of, of why you know, the, the new data age is coming, because we've kind of been in the info age for a long time and we're kind of moving towards the data age now. I think that's actually um, a very, very big and, and, and fast change that's coming to the world. And I think XPIO is, is poised to be a big part of that. If this was the first podcast somebody knew that was getting into the space was listening to, Crypto 101 has kind of positioned itself to be that on-ramp to get into cryptocurrency and blockchain. What would Ari Tro tell these people? Well, um, I think I'd say to most people who are just getting into uh, cryptocurrency and blockchain, um, first of all, just understand that the difference between the two of them. There's uh, crypto, in my opinion, is more the centralized ledger aspect of it, you know, Bitcoin and, and Ethereum and being able to transfer value from one person to the other person without having to have a central authority to, to do that. I think there's a lot of value to that. And it's, it's a huge, huge invention. Um, there's a, you know, limitations to it, of course, as well, and cost and scale and those sorts of things. But then there's blockchain, which is the the concepts and the technologies which we're using in XYO, for example, there are other companies like IBM is using it for Hyperledger. And there's, so blockchain is, a, is a, a technology to be able to make signed ledgers and signed chains of data basically that are unchangeable, which can be used with or without the crypto portion of it. So if you're an enthusiast, first understanding, well, do you are you more in, enthused about the blockchain technology? Or are you more enthused about the uh, decentralized nature of payments and, and functionality and smart contracts? And then go one of those two routes or both. Like, I actually think both of them are very fascinating. I kind of like both of them. So I would say I'm a crypto enthusiast and I'm a blockchain enthusiast. Uh, so understanding the difference between those two, I think is one of the things people should should look at and understand. And then of course, being very careful is one of the next things because um, blockchain, again, like I said before, anything that's, that's, that's powerful can be used for good and evil. So as great as the payments and all these, these neat things are that we can do with blockchain and crypto now, there's also people out there scamming things and, and doing bad things. So be very careful in this space. Please don't be one of those people out there scamming people. <laughs> that's, that's really good advice. Your daughter is a musician, a pretty famous musician, actually. Uh, yeah, she's, she's doing pretty well. I'm going to have to ask you the last question I ask everybody for the show. What three songs would you like on the Crypto 101 Spotify playlist? And which one of your daughter's songs will we be putting on there? Okay, well, uh, yeah, let me look at my phone. I can look at my, my playlist I have on Spotify. I can give you a couple other ones. But I'd say for uh, Elisa's song, I'd probably put Burn. It's probably my favorite song from hers. Okay. Um, it's actually, we shot a video in South Africa for it uh, with a, a Ford Mustang, which is kind of cool. So like, like a 68 Mustang. Probably a Perfect Circle song. Judith is one of my favorite Perfect Circle oh, songs. Good, man. And then um, <laughs> I'd probably also put uh, Change on there from uh, Deftones. Right on. Perfect. All right, Trow, CEO and co-founder of XYO. Thank you for coming on the show, sir. Well, thank you very much, Matthew. All right. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Crypto 101. Ari, if you're listening, thank you for coming on the show. It was a pleasure speaking to you and learning about proof of location. And as a bonus, Ari and I also did this on YouTube with video. So make sure you check out the link in the description for an unedited video production of our conversation with even more content. In our next episode of Crypto 101, we have on Miss Helen High 
who is the head of charity for Binance. It's been big in the news of how Binance is taking all of its listing fees and putting them toward charity. And they brought on Miss Helen High to head that. And we get to learn all about creating that system, BNB Coins role in that, Binance's role in that, and their vision for charity and helping the future. I'm looking forward to sharing that episode with you. And before we go, check out ApogeeCrypto.com. Those are my boys for real-time prices, best place to check out your coins and to make a portfolio. And we'll see you in future episodes of Crypto 101. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.